This morning's reading comes from Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary, and Ma- Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, My name is Stephen, and uh, I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor. If I didn't get to greet you during the break, or uh, if you weren't here for the very start of the service, hi, we are glad that you are here. Well, back when I served at a church in California, there was this group of about 50 guys that would gather together every week in the fellowship hall and have breakfast with one another. They'd been at this for about 50 years, week after week. So you can imagine that whenever I showed up, I kind of brought down the average age just a touch. Uh, And they would have these guest speakers from the community, from, you know, people who were involved in, you know, civic things or uh, nonprofit organizations or some uh, university professors who were going to talk about their research. So I dropped in this one day, and that was the case. It was a retired physics professor. Uh, And after he started talking about his background, about his PhD, all of his accolades, some really really impressive stuff that he had done in his career. Then he said, but that's not all what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about my real passion, which happened to be the aliens that the government were keeping from us. (laughs) And it did not take very long for this incredibly accomplished, seemingly razor sharp and mentally stable guy to go full tilt into Conspiracyville. I mean, he was going on and on about you know, Area 51 was real, and there's alien DNA there, and there's people who have been to other planets, and they've seen them, they can describe them, but these shadowy figures are keeping it from all getting out. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is happening right now? 
And you're thinking, well, you said California, right? <laughs> and that just confirms everything I already think. But as I was walking away that morning, the thought occurred to me, you know, that's, that's probably how a lot of people feel about Easter. I mean, here you are, all dressed up, seersucker suits, bow ties, lots of floral prints. You're looking great. You're on your way to brunch. And here's this guy interrupting you with a story about this obscure provincial Jewish rabbi from the ancient Near East who was crucified on a Roman cross on Friday, dead and was buried, and then came out of his own tomb on a Sunday some 2,000 years ago. And that story matters to your life now. And it matters more than anything else ever has or that anything else ever will. And you're wondering, where do I keep my conspiracy board with the articles and the red yarn? Or you're thinking, at the very least, how long is this going to take? Because uh, I got a mimosa with my name on it. <laughs> and if that's you, then fair enough. And I just want to say, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to All Souls. You'll fit right in this Sunday or any Sunday. But you got to know that if that is you, that you're surrounded by people whose lives have been utterly transformed by that sequence of events that I just described. People whose whole lives are built around the idea that the man on the cross wasn't just a teacher, was God in person who came to be with us, who came to be for us, who lived the kind of life that we were always meant to live. And that his death means something for their lives. Because he didn't just die. He rose again and defeated death. He made sense of our pain and our longing. And those who trust in him are so profoundly changed by this story that they cannot help but join in his work of bringing heaven to earth. And if that's you, then I just want to say, Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen. All right. Amen. So yeah, cards on the table. Easter is an interesting mashup for a pastor. It's like I'm hosting a party and the only rule is everybody's got to wear pastel. <laughs> and some of you, you know, you're here and you're making yourselves right at home. Others of you, you're kind of out on the edges. You're not sure you want to come into the party, but it's important to be seen. And, and I get it. And as Matthew tells the story, that's actually how it was on the first Easter as well. The last line of the story that Jane read this morning, when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's how Easter has always been. Worship and doubt occupying the same space, sometimes even the same heart. And maybe the real mystery of that line is you'd think that, you know, seeing Jesus would make it easier to believe, but that's actually not how the story goes. And that's not how life goes either. I mean, if the Gospels have anything to say about it, the absence of a body never convinced anyone. Only the presence of the living God leaning into the pain and longing of our lives can do that. One of the worst kept secrets of the human experience is that when it actually comes to the most important things, we don't actually make decisions by like weighing the evidence like a jury and, and looking at all of the facts 
and just thinking really hard about them. I and mean, I've been a pastor uh, for nearly 20 years, and I can say that with some conviction. I've met a lot of really smart people who have faith. I've lot of, uh, met a lot of really smart people who have no faith, but I have never met anyone whose faith or doubt in Jesus rests solely on a mental map of reality. For every confession of faith, there's this almost inexplicable, mystical moment of clarity. And for every intellectual objection to faith, there's always this emotional root attached. And so the things that actually guide our lives, they they don't come through cold calculation because they come through something coming into clear focus that we then cannot unsee. So yeah, I believe in the resurrection. Because one day I experienced the presence of God. One day the story that Jesus was telling about the world was the story that made sense of the life that I was actually living. And it awakened something in my heart that I have not been able to put to rest ever since. And you know, the most important parts of life are like that. They they don't take place apart from thinking. They just require way more than thinking can deliver. And maybe you know what that's like. At that time in a meeting when your, your boss says something and it doesn't square with the deepest longings in your heart, the heart of the company is about something else and so it's time for you to do something different. And yeah, it doesn't make sense. It might cost you your security. It might cost you your plans, but all of those things are not worth the cost of your soul and so you got to make a change. Or it's like this experience that I had. I remember calling my mom 20 years ago and telling her, hey, I met somebody. And it's different this time. And I told her that. Even though I had, was still weeks away from asking my now wife out. And if you've met my wife, you'd think, I, you had no reason to think she would actually say yes. <laughs> but something was different. Or it's that night that you're out backpacking under the stars and you look up and you realize just how small you are in the grand scheme of the cosmos but nonetheless how good how beautiful life is you have clarity in those moments and it causes you to see the world differently so then you go out and you look for a story that makes sense of the life you're actually living the the longings that you have and that's what's at the heart of easter come and see the angel says Seeing happens to be one of those words that pops up a lot in these 17 verses. But as the story goes, we see that seeing is not actually the same thing as believing. I mean, the way that Matthew tells that the guards at the tomb, they saw everything. And in fact, when the women get there, these, these soldiers, the most elite military presence on the planet, they, what they saw shook them to the core not only did they see, what they saw terrified them. And you would think that after something so overwhelming like that, they they would fall on their faces and say something like, surely this was the Son of God. Or at least, uh, my bad Jesus, something, right? But that's not actually how the drama plays out, is it? They go and they tell the priests what happened. And the priests offer them some money to tell a rival story. And so they take the cash and they get to work selling the lie. You see, they see the whole thing, but what they actually believe in is money. Maybe we don't really 
believe what we see, we see what we have already chosen to believe instead. And, and here's the thing. We all have a story that we live by, some narrative for how we're going to make it in life, uh, some vision of the, the true and the beautiful that guides you about how you're going to find happiness, how you're going to make your mark in the world. And maybe the story that you're living out is something like the guards at the tomb. You know, as long as there is a paycheck, all is going to be well. With enough money, with enough security, everything's going to be fine. Or maybe it's the storyline of your political tribe. You know, if I can just pull the levers of coercion and, and get the right policies, the right people in place, the wrong people out, then utopia is going to be just right around the corner. And then there's always the popular storylines that dominate our Instagram feeds, the stories of, of, of youth and beauty and sex and fitness or the trifecta of success and power and achievement. We all have a story we're living out. And it's amazing how resilient these stories can be. I mean, even when they consistently fail to make us happy, we still filter every single bit of reality through them. And it only takes a slight alteration to hear, well, if I just had a little bit more money, or if I just unlocked the right niche, or, or if I could just make my mark here, then, then, then I would finally be able to rest. And it doesn't matter when we see a bunch of other people who have those things that we want, who aren't happy. And it doesn't matter when we see a bunch of people who don't have any of those things, but their lives are born out in signs of God's grace. It doesn't really matter what we see at all. Believers, atheists, skeptics alike, we stick with the story we have chosen to believe. And so all of that begs a very important question that you can only dodge going through life for so long. Is the story that you are living true enough to take you where you want to go? And when I say true, I don't mean true like a proposition, you know, true like the law of gravity or something like that. I mean true in the more ancient sense of the word. I knew this Scottish guy named Eric Trevorrow, um, and he decided that he was going to make it his mission in life to turn me into a golfer. Had his work cut out for him. And he had this expression that he would say whenever I hit a shot that went where it was supposed to go. He'd say, oh, my boy, that shot was true. <laughs> he did not say that very often, mind you. But what he meant by that is that everything was aligned. The, the ball the club, the swing, everything was doing exactly what it was meant to do. When the, the shot tells the truth, when it hits the target. And so I mean, true like that. Is the story that you are living true? Is it really taking you where you want to go? Is it making you into the kind of person who the, the best parts of you are, are coming out, or is it just ginning up those parts in you that you would rather not face, let alone exposed to the light of redemption? And, and there's no judgment at all in that question because I have to ask myself that question all the time. It's amazing how resilient these false stories that we cling to are and how hard it is to let go of them. Maybe the thing about the resurrection, you know, that what... Maybe it wasn't so terrifying to the guards, you know, all of the, the earthquakes and, and the lightning and the, the angel on the tomb. Maybe the most terrifying thing to them was that it shook the story apart that they were living by. The story that Rome was the ultimate power. The story that death was not the final word. 
See, when it comes to the things that really matter, the things that drive our lives, we all have a story. Okay, so seeing isn't believing. How about knowing then? I mean, knowing can deliver, right? I mean, what if you did all the academic work? What if you, you, know, you didn't buy the storylines about money and power and sex and all that stuff? And you were able to sort through all of the world's religions, all the world's philosophies, and you came to the end of your searching, and you came to this conviction that the church's story about Jesus was, was true. It actually described reality. Would you believe then? Not necessarily. I love this last line of the story. Again, the, the disciples are all there together. They see Jesus. They, they knew him better than anyone else could have. And Matthew writes this. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I mean, how great is that line? We're cutting heart, you know, to the heart of those of us who hang around the church a little bit with that one, I think. I mean, you can know all the creeds, you can know all the stories, you can know all the words to all the hymns. You can know in your head that it was God in the flesh who was crucified on a Friday and is risen today. You can comb through all of the historical documents and you can accept that at least the first Christians believed what they saw was that Jesus rose from the dead. You can know all of that and you cannot necessarily believe what it is that you know. There was this recent interview with Tom Holland. Uh, he wrote this amazing 600-page history of how Christianity shaped Western civilization. That's Tom Holland, the Cambridge historian, not Tom Holland who plays Spider-Man, just to be clear. I told my kids that I was reading a story uh, by Tom Holland about you know, Christianity in the West, and they were like, that's so cool. I'm like, not as cool as you think it is, actually. <laughs> Anyway, Tom Holland, the historian, is a, not a believer. He's a, he's a skeptic, an agnostic when it comes to Jesus. But over the course of this you know, painstakingly researched and really compellingly written story, uh, he came to some really strong intellectual convictions. Like that the whole system of morality that undergirds Western civilization, you know, this, these ideas that we just take as foundational to how we live and think and operate in the world, such as that the notion that life is sacred, or that the strong have a duty to protect the weak. These actually have no history prior to and no logic apart from the biblical story of creation, fall, cross, and redemption. He became absolutely convinced of that. But what that couldn't do was convince him that the story was true. And so as he was kind of unwinding from all of his academic work, he started to read through the Lord of the Rings just to kind of, you know, take his, take his mind somewhere else. And he started to get really interested in Tolkien's life. And this is what he said in the interview. Tolkien was obsessed with myth and a believing Catholic, and he talked about how myth can be true. And I suppose that's where I am at the moment. I believe that the Christian myth of the cross and the resurrection in some deep psychological, emotional, and spiritual sense is true. Now, whether that in turn means that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that's harder for me to believe. But it may be that having acknowledged the myth that lies at the heart of Christianity as true, it may be that I will come to believe. And I'd welcome that. I want to believe. There are times when I do believe. 
There are times at Christmas or at Easter or when I'm in thin places, these places where the divine seems to intrude on the mortal, where I can read certain things, where I can, where I can contemplate certain people who seem to embody Christian truths. And I do feel this kind of, oh, this must be what it's like to believe. You can have all of the left brain rationality. You can come to the conviction in your mind that something is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to believe it. I want to believe, Holland says. There are times when I do believe. These times when the veil between heaven and earth seems porous. These, these times when God seems as near as your next breath. These moments of clarity when you see somebody whose life just spills out divine grace. And maybe this kind of doubt isn't actually an enemy of faith. Maybe it's actually a companion on the road to faith. You see, because there are all kinds of ways that you can know and still have doubt. I mean, sometimes we, may, we doubt that this is going to make any sort of difference in our lives. Or, you know, you can know in your head that Jesus is Savior, but doubt that he's going to want to have anything to do with the mess that you have made of your life. You can know that God is love and still believe that you are unworthy to receive that love. You can sing all of the words to amazing grace. You can know them by heart and wonder when grace is going to relieve your fears. And in all of that, you can even be content with all of your knowledge and in your life and doubt that you even really need Jesus to begin with. After all, you're a good person. You work hard. You can believe lots of things. You can know everything you need to know about the story and still not believe that the story is true. So if seeing and knowing don't make a dent, then how on earth are we supposed to find hope in the resurrection? Well, fortunately, there are a couple other characters in the story. When Jesus comes to the women who are at the tomb they fall to his feet in worship. Jesus comes to them and it cuts through the deepest pain and the deepest longings of their lives. And they're, they're filled with fear, probably even with some doubt. But those give way to joy when they experience his presence. Joy because his presence means that their hope is secure. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. Resurrection. Fear because his presence means that their presence just got a whole lot more perilous. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. Crucifixion, death. But the joy made the fear worth walking through. Because finally they had a story that was bigger than them. Finally they had a story that made sense of their pain, that made sense of their longings, that gave direction to their hope. Something to give their whole lives to, not just in the hereafter, but the here and now, the living, breathing reality. And so what was it that filled them with enough fear, but also with enough joy to make them walk through that fear? Well, it was the same invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples at the very beginning. The invitation to come and follow him. You see, right after this moment of resurrection joy, he gives them a job to do. And it's the same job that he has given his disciples every day since when they come into his presence. He says, go and tell. 
Go and live resurrection out in the world. Or as the poet farmer Wendell Berry said, go and practice resurrection. Go and celebrate the victory over sin and death out in a world that is addicted to all kinds of storylines about emptiness and death. And resurrection, it is a terrifying story for sure, but it is a story deep enough to really live for. And the only way that we come to see that the story is true is when we participate in ourselves, when we watch this new world break out right in front of us. And it is the story that God has been telling from the beginning. Friends, the surprising joy of Easter isn't just that there is hope beyond this life. It's a story that makes sense of your pain and your longings now, that hope gets to break into the world even now. And Easter is just the best part of that story, that not even death could keep God from being present with us and not just being with us. But he went to the cross to take our sins. He rose to defeat death and to give a final answer to our pain, that now, because of Easter, in the words of Frederick Buechner, resurrection means that the worst thing isn't the last thing. These bodies that have seen pain and brokenness, these bodies will be raised. They will be made radiant. Your pain is not the last true thing about you. No, the last true thing is that Jesus ascended to reign, that his kingdom is breaking into the world even now, and one day he will come to renew everything. And by the Holy Spirit, you get to be brought into this story, written in and called beloved in the family of God, that you might live in Jesus, that you might find your story in his story. You might find your identity in his identity. You might find your calling in his calling. You see, in resurrection, God planted a seed of eternity into the broken soil of this world. And in Jesus, that seed is beginning to push through the surface. So friends, resurrection is not just a better story about how to die. It is a better story about how to really live. After all, it's not just springtime and new growth or the promise that love is going to endure beyond death. I mean, none of that stuff's going to change your life. Not really, anyway. After all, it wasn't sentimentality about new beginnings that made this, this small band of, of worshiping and fearful disciples go out into the world to change their communities, to change the world. No, it was the true story that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's the only story that can make sense of your pain and your longings. So how is it that you come to believe in this hope that's bigger than your doubts and your fears? Only by joining in. Because when it comes to Easter and every day thereafter, believing is seeing. Amen.